keep your Bibles open to Psalm 13. So for the rest of, of the summer, we will be, uh, we're starting a series in the book of Psalms. And why the Psalms are so important is it helps you understand and give the Psalms, give models for how do you process your emotions and your circumstances alongside the character of God. Now, I suspect there are some of you by personality, but also maybe how you grew up. I grew up a little bit like this. As we were sort of taught to take your emotions and stuff them down into your gut. How many of you, that's what you learned to do? You're too scared to say yes. You're too... All right. That's not a good idea. Others of you, uh, and maybe you're a little bit more healthy, although maybe not, you're really good at expressing your emotions when things are difficult, but you don't map those emotions alongside the character of God, and that doesn't help you too much either. What you see in this psalm, and in many psalms, is that the psalmist is under massive duress, emotionally distressed. We're not really sure exactly what has happened. We believe this is a psalm of David, but we don't have enough information in the psalm to know exactly what he's dealing with. But David in this psalm is clearly concerned that God has forgotten him. That God will not answer his prayers. That God seems to not care too much about the things that David is experiencing. And I guess I would ask you a question, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but have you ever felt that God has left you alone in the midst of your trouble? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like God was a million miles away, silent, you're, you're calling out to him and you just, you hear nothing? And if you've never felt that way before, you're probably very young. But don't worry. Wait a week, a month, a year, a couple of years, and you'll be right where David was, right where this psalmist was, right where many of us end up when we are overwhelmed with circumstances and God does not seem to care at all. What Psalm 13 gives us is a model for how to respond when God seems silent, when he seems unconcerned. And I wish I could tell you that, oh, I'm going to give you three steps. Do X, do Y, and Z, and woo, God will answer your request. It doesn't work like that. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis uh, said about Christianity. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Keep that in mind as we go through this psalm. I think the psalmist makes three particular moves These are not moves that will guarantee that God will answer your problem the way you want it and in the time frame that you want it. But it's three moves 
we all have to make if we're going to get through these difficult times and make progress in our walk with God. It's not a magic bullet. It's not three magic bullets. It's three moves. Let's look at the first move you need to make. And the first move is this. We all must learn to take our complaints to God directly. Notice what the psalmist does here. Four different times he calls out to God and says, how long? Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me ever? Now, I I don't think the psalmist is concerned that, that God has consciously forgotten who he is. It's the sense that God is neglecting to see the psalmist in his distress. It's a sense of neglect that the psalmist feels. I've asked for help. You don't seem to see, hear, or act on my behalf. And notice what he says, will you forget me forever? For the psalmist, it feels like this trial, this distress I'm under keeps going on. And you don't seem to be doing anything. Psalmist goes on, how long will you hide your face from me? Now the blessing of God in in the scriptures is is often described as having the face of God torn uh, turn towards you. Number six, which I will use for the benediction this morning, talks about make his face shine upon you. It's a sense of of if, if God's face is shining upon you, he's turning towards you. He's prepared to shower us with his grace and his mercy. What the psalmist feels in his trial that has gone on for a while and his prayers that don't seem to be answered is he feels like God's face is not torn turned toward him, that God has hidden his face, where the blessing of mercy and grace that the the, the psalmist would expect is not being poured out on him. Hiding the face is the psalmist's way of saying, I don't sense, I don't feel, I'm not experiencing in real time your mercy and grace, God. goes on in verse 2. How long will I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The psalmist is, is mulling over his situation. He's, he's, he's under uh, this incredible emotional distress. He's trying to figure out how can he solve these difficulties? How can I solve these trials? God doesn't seem to be doing too much. And he's, he's uh, sort of immobilized by an inner sense of sorrow and grief that is overwhelming him. It's overwhelming his mind. Take counsel means to to, to ruminate over, to try to figure out how to move forward, and he can't seem to do that. And he's got sorrow in his heart. He's overwhelmed, he's immobilized, he's paralyzed. The fourth, how long? At the end of verse two, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Apparently, one part of this psalmist and David's uh, you know, his psalm is that an enemy of his is, it looks like he's getting victory over him. Some of you face that. You've got a difficult person in your family that you have an unresolved conflict with. Some of you have difficulties at work or a, a former friend who's betrayed you. And, 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 and the, the wicked person, as the text says, is, is uh, you know, 
saying, I prevailed over, over him. It's, it's almost a sense in which the psalmist is saying, my enemies, God, are, are exulting over my demise. And they're exulting over the fact that you don't seem to be working in my life. And in fact, these enemies of mine may actually be doing wicked things. So they're your enemies. And you're letting the wicked people get away with it. And meanwhile, you don't respond to me. You're doing nothing to rectify the situation. The first move that we have to make in the midst of distressing circumstances is to go directly to God and give your complaint to God directly. And I think too many believers are like, is that a good idea? <laughs> to tell God, I, you, know, eh, you know, where are you? you no, it's a, good, it's a great idea. You need to honestly talk to God. You need to share it with him what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. To take your grief, your complaint, your situation, your sense of abandonment, and speak directly to God about it. And unfortunately, I think one of the things that happen to us in the midst of deep and dark and profound suffering that we are undergoing is praying and talking to God is like the last thing we really want to do. I've lived long enough to have a number of bad nights. But one of the worst for me, I'm not going to give you the details, I'm just saying if I told you all the details you would say yes, I understand why you were distressed. I understand why you would be upset. I was so upset. And for eight hours, I must confess, for eight hours, I couldn't sleep that evening. For eight hours, I honestly was a functional atheist. I couldn't pray. I didn't want to pray. I thought God is a million miles from me. This set of circumstances is so horrible. I couldn't pray. I didn't want to read the Bible. I probably should have told the elders this before I accepted the job here. (laughs) I was a functional atheist. I didn't want to talk to God about anything because I didn't have confidence he cared and I didn't have confidence that he would work on this situation. It was that grievous to me. Slowly at the end of the eight hours, I I, I kind of, I I moved from being an atheist to, to a deist. I believe God made the world. He didn't care about the world, but at least he made it. And finally I moved and I became a theist again. And, and it's not that I, I had these incredible prayers. I simply called out to God and said, why can't you do something? Why can't you work? Where in the world are you? And I wish I could have said when I prayed that prayer, God magically took the situation away. No, it didn't. But I was in a better place because I had simply taken my complaint to God, shared with him what he already knew was going on in my heart. He wasn't surprised, but I took my complaint directly to him. And while I didn't have a lot of faith necessarily that he could fix it, at least I went to the only person who had the power to deal with it. And some of you are in the midst of a trial right now that is so grievous and you're having trouble praying. I get it. I was a functional atheist. If you write me in the email and say I'm a functional atheist, I get it. We'll form a little support group, the functional atheist support group, which all of you should probably join. And cry out to God and tell him exactly how you're feeling 
exactly how you feel abandoned, exactly why you are frustrated that he doesn't seem to care about your situation. That's the first move you need to make. And that's not going to necessarily fix anything. But you'll be different. There's a second move that the psalmist makes in verses 3 and 4. And in the second move, what, we, what we, we come to understand is we must learn to keep asking God for deliverance. In other words, we need to learn to persevere and pray. Notice what he says, consider and answer me. He's already given his complaint to God. Now he says, consider and answer me. He's saying, consider me, look at me, look at my situation. And he's asking for deliverance. He says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's, he's asking for God to revive him, to, 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 bring, to bring light to his eyes. He's like a person whose eyes are heavy because of the sorrow and the distress he's under. He's asking God to revive him somehow. He's also given reasons. Reasons why God should answer this request. He says, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In a very real sense, what the the psalmist begins to do here is to say, God, you need to act because my enemies are rejoicing in the fact that I'm I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm a follower of yours, and my enemies see that you're not doing anything about it. In other words, the psalmist is giving a reason. You need to answer. You need to give me some relief. Why? Because the enemies of God will look at me and they see me praying and asking you and they see that you seem, seem to have abandoned me and it reflects poorly on you. In a very real sense, he, the psalmist is praying, you know, Lord, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, your reputation is at stake. The psalmist is praying about the reputation of God, not simply his own situation, and he's certainly praying that as well. He's asking God to act in order to validate the greatness of God and not simply his own situation. He's asking God not to allow the enemies of this believer and the enemies of God to rejoice because God seems to have abandoned one of his own. And it's good and right for us to give these kinds of reasons to God as the basis of our request to find biblical principles that are at stake, to find what about God's kingdom is at stake in your situation, and then ask God to work for his own glory, even as you ask him to work for your good. We must learn to keep praying, even when our trial continues. And that's the second move. There's a third move that the psalmist makes, and it's, it's, a big, it's a big move. Verse five, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now wait a minute. There's no indication that God has answered the fundamental need of the psalmist. He says, but 
I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, it, it, it may be that the, the psalmist is looking forward to deliverance, but the first part of this sort of bold declaration, this defiant declaration is, I have trusted in your steadfast love. David is saying, in spite of the fact that you seem absent from me, in spite of the fact that you're not doing much, in spite of the fact that I feel abandoned by you in some sense, I will grab a hold of the steadfast love of God and I will believe and praise you because you have put your unconditional love upon me. And therefore I will sing. The third move is we must learn that under duress, we must learn to rely on God's steadfast love plus nothing else. And this is the big jump. I don't think any of us really want to do that. I didn't do it for eight hours, and believe me, I've had other hours of functional atheism. When I was so overwhelmed with God's seemingly abandonment of me and the situation I was in that I had a hard time praying him. But the psalmist says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now, we, we understand the full expression of God's steadfast love. This is his loyal covenant love that he freely, unconditionally bestows upon his people. We know full well when we get to the New Testament that this is speaking of the fact that Jesus Christ hung on a cross and took your sin and mine upon himself and offers us the full forgiveness of sins, power over sin now and forever. That the steadfast love, that is what we have to hold on to. And I think our difficult problem here is that the steadfast love of God doesn't satisfy us completely, honestly. You saw what we read in, in, in Psalm 63. Your steadfast love is better than life. If we actually believe that in real time, what that means is knowing that Jesus died for me and poured out his love on me, that is enough to get me through the times when I feel abandoned by God. I don't need God to do anything else because of this incredible outpouring of love completely satisfies me and I don't need anything else in my life to work right to keep, that would keep me from being content and satisfied and hopeful. C.S. Lewis says it so well. He said, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. But that's the problem. I think for many of us, if we're honest about where we are spiritually, we love God and we're very thankful. We're going to celebrate communion. You're very thankful for what God has done. But you have a hard time. I have a hard time sometimes to be content, to be satisfied. I know God and I know what he did for me on the cross. That's great. But I kind of need God to do this. In other words, I'm satisfied to a large extent in, in the steadfast love of God, but it's, it's the steadfast love of Christ, plus I need this to go right, I need this to go right, I need this to go right, I need this to go right. And when we fall into that, living in a broken world that we do, you are going to have a hard time ever being satisfied and content. 
Because that's not what God promises. God promises himself. He promises his steadfast love. And that is what can satisfy us. Plus nothing. I think sometimes we forget. Uh, we read earlier from 1 Peter 4. We forget that God's purpose for us is to change us by the power of the gospel. And that, that, that changing us re requires us to go through difficult times. There's no way to get to a point where we, we are satisfied with the steadfast love of God plus nothing else. Unless God sort of peels away all the other things we were depending upon. Again, I'm sorry, but I read C.S. Lewis a lot this week, so you're getting C.S. Lewis. Next week, J.R. Tolkien, maybe. I love this illustration. C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. The basis of it is the steadfast love of God. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in your palace himself. Problem that we have. We're not prepared for the suffering and for the silence of God because we don't understand what he's doing. And what he's doing is trying to help us get to the point where we are satisfied and content with him because of his steadfast love plus nothing else. I don't pretend that that is an easy move to make. I don't always make it myself. I want God to, yes, fill me up with his steadfast love, but I really kind of need him to do X, Y, and Z, or A, B, C, or whatever I think he should do. What we have to get to in our life, in our walk with Christ, if we really want to live well in a broken world, Yes, we need to learn to take our complaints to God. That's important. We need to learn to keep praying even when it's difficult and give biblical and godly reasons why God should act based on his glory and our good together. But lastly, we have to learn to rely on God's steadfast love plus nothing else. And that's why I think it's fortuitous that we end our service with communion. You see, Jesus certainly felt abandoned and was actually abandoned by God, it looks like. When he's on that cross, having your sin and my sin put on him, experiencing the, the wrath of God that we deserve, what does he call out to God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a very real sense, this Jesus 
is willing to, to be abandoned by his father. He, the father, his son, and Holy Spirit have been in perfect communion from all eternity and past. But now with our sin being placed on Jesus, there's a break between he and his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is experiencing complete abandonment by father God. Why? So that you and I would never be abandoned because of what he did for us. And when we make the steadfast love of Christ, the, the main focus of our lives, the, 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 what Jesus did, that becomes where we find satisfaction. That is where we find hope. That is where we find meaning. That is where we find this peace in him plus nothing. Enables us to defiantly as the psalmist says, he says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. When we understand all that Christ has done for us, we could be in massive disarray in our earthly life. But we can still look to that cross and rejoice and sing and praise. Because the most important issue that all of us have, being separated from God, has been dealt with fully and finally through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was abandoned so that even when you feel like you're abandoned, you're not. Because the steadfast love of Christ, if you trusted him, has been poured out on you. And when you grab hold of that, when you, 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 you sort of, in a functional way, grab hold of that more consistently, more comprehensively, you can be a person who defiantly stares a whole bunch of horrible circumstances in the face. You can complain to God, you can keep praying, but you can rejoice in the Lord. You can sing to the Lord because you have found satisfaction in Christ, a steadfast love plus nothing else. One of the things I did after this long night of my functional atheism several years ago, I decided to try to start to memorize the book of Romans. Don't ask me to recite it this morning. But at a certain point, I, 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 I got through Romans 1 to 5. And the particular trial that I was dealing with had, had not completely resolved. But I remember as I recited the book of Romans, you know, Romans 1, 2, and 3 talk about the sinfulness of humanity and talked about how I'm separated from God and there's no hope for me apart from Christ. And then, and then Paul talks about at the end of Romans 3 that Jesus Christ came and he took on our sin so he can declare us to be as righteous as Jesus Christ. He takes our sin, he deals with that, he also gives us the righteousness of Christ. We're in union with Christ. It's all by grace, Romans 4 says. Not to the one who works, but to him who trusts him, who justifies the ungodly. And then in Romans 5, talks about our union with Christ. And at the very end of Romans 5, it says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And simply thinking about those texts, every day I would recite them and try to memorize them. What a difference it made in my spiritual life. Because at a, a deeper level, 
God used his word to help me trust a little bit more consistently and a little bit more comprehensively in his steadfast love. And although the trial that had made me a functional atheist, you know, several years before, was still going on in some sense, I was clinging to the steadfast love of God a little bit more, and it made all the difference in my life. It's Jesus, his steadfast love plus nothing. Let's pray. Lord, take the words of Psalm 13, and I pray that you would prepare us for communion, to celebrate what you did for us, how you poured out your steadfast love for us. In your name, amen.